Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Catherine Oliver. Cities and states are reopening even as coronavirus cases are continuing to surge in the U.S. And public health professionals are more reliant on data than ever in order to drive decision-making and to save lives. As the director of the Center for Health Security of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Dr. Tom Inglesby and his team use research, data, and expert analysis to advise the political and scientific communities about public health practices to mitigate the effects of epidemics and disasters. In this episode, Dr. Inglesby sat down with Bloomberg Philanthropy's public health program lead, Dr. Kelly Henning, to tell us more about how states are looking at data to inform school and office reopenings, whether we're in the first or second wave of COVID-19, and the power of social media during the pandemic. Good morning, Dr. Inglesby. It's so great to have you with us. I'd love to begin our discussion today just asking you to talk a little bit about your work at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Sure. Well, Kelly, thanks for having me to your show. Our center was started by D.A. Henderson back about 20 years ago. D.A. was the former director of the Worldwide Smallpox Eradication Program, and he was worried that our country wasn't really preparing enough or using the skills of doctors and nurses and public health researchers in ways to get prepared for large epidemics. And so he started our center back around 1999 and gathered a group of people who were from a variety of fields over time, medicine, public health, social science, law, experts who've been in government. And our mission is to prevent the consequences of epidemics and to try to do that through prevention work, through preparedness planning, and response work. Our center is based on data. We do research, we do analysis, we work with policymakers at the federal level. We work with international organizations to try and strengthen their programs of preparedness and response with local officials, with professional groups who are important to this work. And just as a sense of things uh, during COVID-19, our center of, of 35 people, many of us meet every morning, look at the data in the U.S. and the rest of the world, the trends, the scientific studies, talk to each other about what we think we've learned, and to try and use that to be valuable in our work. Our work is aimed at policymakers or at the scientific and public health community. And overall, just in a sentence, I think we're trying to do work to to help improve the response to COVID-19 at this point. I wonder if you could maybe give us an example from epidemiology of how you use some data that might surprise people. There are lots of ways to think about the work of epidemiology, for example, around mobility data and how people move around the country, particularly in this response. How are people moving or not moving when we've tried to reduce social interaction. We have an interest in air travel, the patterns in the world, uh, how epidemics change those patterns, where people are moving back and forth from by air or by other means. We, we care a lot about human behaviors and how they affect exposures. So especially in epidemics, there are many things that are really important to study that are relate to human behaviors, decision-making, patterns of spread, that are really important for trying to get a handle on things. Let's just, uh, let's just uh, step down for a minute to the state level. Sure. Uh, I know that you work a lot with the state of Maryland and you've advised them in the past on public health. Um, can you tell us a little bit 
about what kind of information the state governments use uh, when they decide what their public health practice will be and how you've been able to help uh, states think about that. In COVID-19, for example, the state uh, is collecting information, some of which is obvious. Uh, so incidents of disease, how many new cases do we have on a daily basis? And what are the trends? And where within a state are they happening in one county versus another? So those are probably pretty straightforward. They also want to know about hospitalization rates. What are the overall numbers of beds in a hospital that are occupied by a COVID patient? How many ICU beds in particular? And how many ventilators are being used by COVID patients? We really want to track those over time to see if the epidemic is getting worse or better. That's important because we're expanding diagnostic testing around the country in many places, but it's important to be able to distinguish whether new cases, new higher incidence of cases is really a resurgence or a surge of serious disease, or is it just better testing and we're picking up mild and moderate cases in more fidelity. So hospital rates, ventilators, those things tell you, yes, that if they're going up, that's a serious new development that the epidemic is clearly getting worse in, a, in an important way. They also look at things like the positivity rate of diagnostic testing. And, you know, hopefully those numbers have come down over time. In most places in the country, they have come down pretty substantially. Unfortunately, in some places now, diagnostic test positivity rates are going up and some, in some places quite sharply. Arizona was up to 20% when our national standard that we're trying to be below is 5%. So public health, gov state governments are all tracking those metrics. Not all states are equally good at displaying that information. I think in the state, in Maryland, we're doing a good job in displaying that information, which is great. Some states can do better. I wanted to get your input along these very same lines. What do you think is going on here in terms of the, not just the collection and display of the data, but the actual use of it in public health practice? I think it's, it's varied across the country, uh, and it's a super important question. Some governors seem to be really trying to uh, react to the data that they have. Others, it's less clear. And I think many people in the public health community are quite worried about indoor gatherings sparking large outbreaks. As we have seen repeatedly now since the beginning of COVID-19, there was a study that came out that described Japanese experiences early on uh, in the pandemic, and it showed major outbreaks started by concerts, bars, restaurants, other large gatherings. And in the U.S., we've seen big outbreaks started in churches, in Mardi Gras, uh, and office conventions. So I think the, there's very clear evidence that large gatherings pose a risk of higher spread. And so I think that's data that some governors are, are reacting to appropriately. Some states have really opened up everything, but I am worried about in general across the country about indoor gatherings, indoor large gatherings, and having political leaders really understand the risks associated with them. I want to just continue on this theme with you. You had a tweet that went viral um, when you posted a thread uh, about President Trump saying he wanted to pack churches on Easter. And I guess I wanted to understand what your thoughts are about the power of social media in the setting of this pandemic. Do you have thoughts about how, um, what kind of utility social media has in, at this moment? 
Yeah, I think it has incredible utility. I think social media and media, traditional media broadly, and they're kind of combined in some ways, have had a, a just absolutely essential role from the beginning of this outbreak. I think uh, in China, we learn things from the media and from social media that were not released by the government. And incredible reporting helped describe the, all the work that went on in China at the start to try and control the outbreak. It's also then been crucial as things have moved around the world. And I think especially when there are conflicting messages coming from political leaders, having media report and then social media amplify messages and reporting and stories about public health is crucial. I am worried that one of the downsides of this pandemic is that reporters have a hard time traveling to places. And so there are going to be things that are missed that may not be, that may not have been if, if people could get to places. And in that case, I think we just need to rely on local reporters, lo people who aren't traditional reporters, but people who can describe their situation through social media and have that, that event be amplified so others can understand it. Social media is a very powerful tool. I think at the center, when we use social media, we see that it can get to reporters, it can get to influencers or decision makers quickly and um, in a way that's not necessarily easy to do by other channels. And I know, I know that that's a concern that some people have expressed. I don't know if, you, if your group actually tracks misinformation or it's something that you all are, are thinking about. Actually, it is. Yes. For a number of years, one of my colleagues, Tara Kirksell, and a team around her has been very focused on understanding misinformation and disinformation around epidemics. And the, the difficulty with getting at that problem is that as if, if government takes strong positions against misinformation, it can actually use those same laws to restrict freedoms of speech, which are also really important. So it's a very fine balance. You know, I, I think it's not entirely clear what the solutions are. I think one commonly talked about solution is just flooding the airwaves with the right information. There's a competition for people's eyes and ears. And if misinformation is amplified broadly out of proportion to the good information, then people will be confused. But if organizations that are science-based and that we trust with public health, like city health departments, state health departments, CDC, WHO, if they're in the position to really broadcast repeatedly good science-based information, that's one tool. It's not particularly a sophisticated tool, but it's an important tool during a crisis. I want to turn again into a new area for a second and talk about schools and workplaces. So many questions are arising about whether schools will open, if they do, how and whether offices will be able to safely reopen. I'm wondering what kind of data we should all be using and looking at to think about schools and offices. I think on the school issue, we are still learning a lot about school reopening and risk. And for, for a large portion of the pandemic, most kids in schools around the world were home. And so for those periods of time, we don't really have a lot of good studies on transmission in children. There are schools that have now begun to reopen, particularly in places where transmission is low. And we need to understand from those places the best we can through research and through data, 
What was the experience of a school in Israel or in Scandinavia that has been open or reopened recently? In imperfect conditions, we would be studying both in the transmission between kids in school and also between kids and their teachers, administrators, and their older family members at home. That total picture is what we need. We don't have a lot of information, good published information on the risk of transmission in schools. We're beginning to get that. It's not all lining up in the same direction. We have called at our center for urgent study in the U.S. of schools or the schools that are open now, even in, in summer session or in camps to understand what the risk of transmission is so that we will have more information by the time most schools are considering going back into session in September. I do think that there, that it's likely that schools will go back in the fall and that there will be a range of mitigation measures and procedures in place to try and reduce the risk. And I do think in terms of data, that what CDC is saying is that schools should make decisions about reopening based on patterns of local spread. If local spread is low or limited, then schools can operate more closely to normal. And then if schools are in places where there's very high transmission, that's going to be challenging for schools because they will also be in the middle of things. And there'll be some in-between space where schools will have to navigate. And they're going to have to work closely with public health officials in those states and in those counties to understand the data, to understand what they need to do in the event of an outbreak in school and how contract tracing will work, et cetera. So I do think there's a lot of work to do. This, I think opening schools is one of the, the, the remaining very hard challenges in this pandemic and how we do it safely. Uh, a lot of work now going on in schools around the country. And on the office side, many people are now going back to offices. Uh, That's already beginning around the country, including New York City. And I think the first thing I would say is in terms of office settings, I would continue to telecommute if you can, because if, if a portion of the office telecommutes, that reduces the risk of that person who's telecommuting and the others who have to be in that office because of less density and less people interacting. This virus is the same virus as we've had all along. It is spread by close social interaction. And the more density there is in a workplace, the more likely there'll be in-office transmission. There are many things that are happening in offices uh, and that CDC has recommended for offices to try and diminish the risk. I would just type that into Google, you know, CDC information. It's a combination of things that include wearing face coverings, thinking about shifts uh, and whether an early shift and a late shift in an office could, again, decrease density so that not everyone's there at the same time. None of these are easy, simple, you know, turnkey solutions. They really have to be fit to the work or to the school. But understanding how risk, risk patterns and what is possible, I think, is key as people are going back to work. Thank you for that. And and I think what I'm going to try to do now is squeeze in one last question, okay. which is um, this issue of waves. So are we in a second wave? Are we still in a first wave? Has the first wave never ended? Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what's going on around the waves? Yeah, I mean, the second wave concept, I think, has been around since we've been talking about pandemic influenza planning for a long time. And we know that from the past pandemics of flu, there have been fall waves, which correspond with 
the onset of seasonal flu, like the, pat, the time of year when flu is worst. And in this case, with, with this disease, we are worried about a rise in incidence in the fall, not so much because of seasonal change. Th that might happen, but there's also not a lot of evidence yet that that will happen. It's possible. But because of the return to schools, universities may, are getting going, people are coming back to work maybe after summertime, and the influenza season is beginning in the fall. All those things make people in the public health community worried about a rise in cases in the fall. And people have talked about that as the, second, the time of the second wave. But what that has distracted some from is the fact that in some places, we've never even reached a serious plateau or a turndown in the number of cases. In about half of the country right now, we have a steady and in some places quite sharp rise in daily cases day to day, week to week. And so I think what I would say is we are still in that first wave. We have not, we have not completely diminished this disease in the way that countries like New Zealand and Thailand and Australia and Iceland have so effectively done. We are still having serious outbreaks in many places in the country, but many states are still in this upward, upward movement of cases and are, are still proceeding forward in the reopening process, which is a mistake. And so I think we, it's good to think about a second wave, but we may still be in this first wave of cases by then. We don't know. I think it's difficult to predict what will be happening a month from now because so much of what happens in this pandemic will be driven by people's personal choices and actions and what political leaders and public health leaders are guiding them to do, are enforcing or directing their publics to do. Dr. Inglesby, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your views. And we're really, really pleased to be able to talk with you. Thank you so much for the chance to be on your show. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to Dr. Tom Inglesby and Dr. Kelly Henning for joining us. If you'd like to hear more from them, you can follow Dr. Inglesby on Twitter at T underscore I-N-G-L-E-S-B-Y and Dr. Henning at Dr. Kelly Henning. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data podcast and tell your friends to subscribe as well. This episode was created by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Sarah Washington, Eric Levin, Cindy Nunclaris, and Adam Ziegenhals. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening. <laughs>